I had a great story for you, but you're going to have to wait till next week. So invite somebody, bring them in, I'll tell you a great story, okay? Right now, I want to share one of my devotions with you. For nearly 30 years, I wake up with a guy named Oswald Chambers. And uh, I think I've used his devotions before. Uh, just go over and over, and it seems like every day God has a fresh word. Listen to this word that he had for us. Based on Hebrews 10, 24 and 25, it says, Let us consider one another to provoke unto love and to good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together. That kills the myth of which you can worship God in a boat. You can worship him in a tree stand, golf course. It doesn't matter where you are. But God created the body of Christ to be together and stay together. And so this is an admonishment. And we're to provoke. I like that word. Provoke. It's kind of like a elbow in the ribs. Well, here's what Oswald said. We're all capable of being spiritual sluggards. We do not want to mix with the rough and tumble of life as it is. Our one objective is to secure a retirement. The note struck in Hebrews 10 is that of provoking one another and, and of keeping together both which require initiative and the initiative of Christ's realization, not self realization. To live a remote, retired, secluded life is the complete opposite of the spirituality as Jesus Christ taught it. The test of our spirituality comes when we come up against injustice, meanness, ingratitude, and turmoil, all of which have the tendency to make us spiritual sluggards. We want to use prayer and Bible reading for the prime purpose of retirement. We utilize God for the sale, sake of getting peace and joy. That is, we do not want to realize Jesus Christ. We just want to realize our enjoyment from him. This is the first step in the wrong direction. All these things are effects, and we try to make them causes. I think it meets, said Peter, to stir you up by putting you in remembrance. It is a most disturbing thing to be smitten in the ribs by some provoker by God, by someone who is full of spiritual activity. Active work and spiritual activity, not the same thing. Active work may be the counterfeit of spiritual activity. The danger of spiritual sluggishness is that we do not wish to be stirred up. All we want to hear about is spiritual retirement. Jesus never encouraged us to retire. He says, go. I thought that was very relevant in the message today. We're going to be talking about the making of a nation. Because in reality, that's what God was doing. There was no nation of Israel. In fact, the Bible said that God said to them, I didn't choose you because you're a mighty people. I didn't choose you because you're great in number. In fact, 70 went into Egypt. 450 years later, some have said upwards to 2 million people came out. God's chosen people. And now that they have escaped uh, Egypt through the hand of God, they're going into a land that has been promised them 
all the way back to their forefather, Abraham. Every Jewish lad, every Jewish man knew that God had said that through Abraham, he would bless not only the nation of Israel, but all nations. And they were looking for that blessing. They cried and moaned and begged God for 400 years, deliver us from our slavery, deliver us from our slavery. And he did through mighty acts that gave just, I mean, there was no doubt that the only one true God was Yahweh, God himself. And he proved that by the 10 plagues that he came against Egypt with, each one representing one or more gods that were worshipped by the most powerful nation in the world. But you see, right off from the bat, Israel started making the wrong steps. And we're going to back up a little bit. I've got some scriptures here we're going to read. You'll remember them. But let's just kind of trace this. In Exodus 14, they said to Moses, now the setting is this. Red Sea, Pharaoh's army. Got that? They said to Moses, is it because there's no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? What have you done to us in bringing us out of Egypt? Is it not what we said to you in Egypt, leave us alone? Did they say leave us alone in Egypt? No. 450 years of, oh God, deliver us. Oh God, set us free. Oh God, give us that country. Now they're saying, didn't we say to you, leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians? For it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. They're out of Egypt, but they haven't gone into that land that's promised. And they're already, because of fear, already they're taking back everything they said. Exodus 15. Then Moses made Israel set out from the Red Sea, and they went into the wilderness of Shur. They went three days in the wilderness and found no water. Then when they came to Marah, they could not drink the water because of the water of Marah was bitter. Therefore, it was named Marah. And the people grumbled against Moses saying, what shall we drink? That's a good question. But should they ask grumbling? I, I, I say to you at this point, I want you to recall that they've seen 10 plagues. They've seen the Red Sea fold back. And they walk on dry ground. Now they need water and they're simply grumbling. Move on to Exodus 16. <clears throat> they set out from Elam. And the congregation of the people of Israel came to the wilderness of Sin. Which is between Elam and Sinai. On the 15th day of the second month after they had departed from the land of Egypt. And the whole congregation of the people of Israel grumbled. Whole congregation among the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. And the people of Israel said to them, Would that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of the Egypt. Exodus 17. All the congregation of the people of Israel moved on from the wilderness of sin by stages. 
according to the command of the Lord, and kept, and they camped at Rephidim. But there was no water for the people to drink. Therefore the people quarreled with Moses and said, Give us water to drink. And Moses said to them, Why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? But the people thirsted there for water. And the people grumbled against Moses and said, Why did you bring us up out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? Very good questions. Are you seeing the stage we're setting? You know, many times when we look at Israel, we condemn them. And we condemn them almost in a pharisaical way because we simply point out all the things that they did wrong. But you've got to understand that Israel is kind of a mirror of how God can take a, a, a person that is imprisoned, a person that is locked in sin, and set them free. The problem with Israel at this point is this. They have seen all the mighty works of God. They have seen him provide water. He's provided food. He provides these things. But the problem with Israel was this, is they did not know how to be free. They grumbled as slaves in Egypt. When they were set free, they began to grumble as free people on the way to inherit a land that already had houses on it, had vineyards, had olive trees. It was a land that was described as flowing with milk and honey. But the problem is they didn't know how to be free. They never, in every time they had a physical need Rather than turning to God or running to turning to Moses and saying, Moses, uh, is there water around here? Okay. Thank you, Lord, for the water. They simply begin to gripe and grumble. And we live in a, a land today. If you, you keep up with things, people think anything they want to get, they begin to gripe and grumble. And the problem is every time they gripe and grumble and get something, they figure out that's the way to get it. And so you have a generation, you have people that absolutely don't know how to be free. You see, they saw the wonders of the Lord God, but they did not know the God of the wonders. You can know the name God, you can know the name Jesus, you can attend church, you can read your Bible, you can do a lot of things in life. And if you think that brings on a relationship, it doesn't. You see, a relationship is built by willing obedience. And willing obedience moves into willing service. When we have a relationship with God, it is literally a walking, talking relationship with God. By that, it simply means that at any time of the day, at any time, no matter where you are, you have the opportunity to pray, to thank God for little things. You know... We are so after the large things of life that we forget the little things. Have you ever gone shopping and it started to rain and as you drive into the parking lot, you see a parking place right up front? Now, I'm not going to say God blocked that off from anybody, but I am saying that if you're living in a relationship with God, the first thing you do for that is say, thank you, Lord. Thank you. You see, we are grumbling people, not thankful people. I don't read that after they got water. They said, thank you, God. Thank you, Moses. 
When they got food, there was no thank you. It was simply, here is my list. I want you to fill it because you're God and you're supposed to. As Oswald said, they had taken the step into living inward rather than outward for the Lord God. You see, we were created not to have our enjoyments fulfilled. Because I want you to realize, and you can use your own self if you want to, it doesn't matter how much you get, you want just that much more after you get what you get. That's called human nature. Why is it that people hoard? Why is it they hold on? It's a lack of trust in God because of a lack of a relationship relating to him as our father. They've just become words that we say as we say the Lord's prayer, our father. But is he that father figure? I've had people say I've had lousy father figures. And I say to them, I'm sorry for that, but let me introduce you to a father who will never fail you. He loves you to the extreme. He loves you through the stripes and the spear in the side of his son and the nails in his hand. He is there not to make you a happy person. He is brought, he is there to make you a free person in Christ Jesus with a shelf over you, around you, and back of you as you face a world that is indeed wicked and bad. When we get to, you get to the 33rd chapter of Exodus, you'll find out Moses moved his tent outside of the, where they were encamped. This is really a showing of a, the presence of God moving out of the camp. Because if you read the preceding chapters, and I hope you have, you'll see all of the other issues. Moses was on the mountain. He came down with his Ten Commandments. And the, one of the things that people said is, don't let God speak to us. We want Moses to speak to us. But yet Moses' face shone because of the glory of God. And they were afraid of Moses, so Moses had to put a veil over his face. When Moses came off of the mountain, what did he find? He found a golden calf. And we found, he found this, this nation that God had delivered into a freedom, trying to bring them into a relationship, worshiping the gods of the country they had just left. These were indeed a stiff-necked, obstinate people. And so as a visible illustration, I believe Moses simply moved his tent outside of the camp. And we'll read about that in chapter 33. <clears throat> Moses used to take the tent and pitch it outside the camp, far off from the camp. And he called it the tent of meeting. And everyone who sought the Lord would go out of the tent of the meeting, which was outside the camp. Whenever Moses went out to the tent, all the people would rise up and each would stand at his tent door and watch Moses until he had gone into the tent. And when Moses entered the tent, the pillar of cloud, which is the presence of God, would descend and stand at the entrance of the tent. 
And the Lord would speak to Mo, with Moses. And when all the people saw the pillar of cloud standing at the entrance of the tent, all the people would rise up and worship each in his tent door. Thus the Lord used to speak to Moses face to face as a man speaks to his friend. When Moses turned again and into the camp, his assistant Joshua, the son of Nun, a young man, would not depart from the tent. Moses, in a very visible way, was showing the people that the presence of God had moved outside the camp. Now later, when they built the tabernacle, you'll find out that the tabernacle was the center of life. They camped three tribes on the north, three on the south, three on the east, and three on the west. And inside that circle, closest to the tabernacle, is where the Levites made their tent. And when they traveled, they traveled just like that, which was an indication of God's presence, God's protection, as he began to move them from where they were into this promised land. Here, Moses is giving them a very visible lesson that when he goes to his tent of meeting, God meets him there. And the result is that many of the tribes would stand at their door and worship God. In verse, uh, chapter 34, I'm not going to read those, Sue. In chapter 34, God gave them another chance. He renewed the covenant with Israel. And the renewal of the covenant said this, If you keep my commands, I will go ahead of you and defeat the armies of the country on which you'll go. And they give you a list out. There are a lot of what I call vites, Hittites, Havites, thisite, and thatite. It didn't matter who they were. God was going before them and opened the country for them. You see, God' desire is for a relationship. I, I'm, I'm afraid in, in our experience today, we replace a relationship with simply just trying to be good. You know, we have the good Christian and the bad Christian, which is oxymoron. In Christ, we're perfect. When he looks at us, he sees the blood of Jesus. He sees his righteousness, his holiness, he has placed in us. We spend all of our time, as Oswald said, in a lot of busy activity and call it spirituality. And the one thing that God is doing to us daily is saying, come to me. I created mankind to have fellowship with. Now, there is philosophers that says there is a God and that God created the heavens and earth and that God created mankind. But then that God retreated somewhere far out into the universe and he has nothing to do with everyday life or its people. That's, that is heresy. God created mankind in his image that he may enjoy this relationship of living your life with you. Have you ever thought about that? You have a God who desires to live your life with you. You're still going to go through times of trial. There's going to be death. There's going to be sickness. 
You're going to be in a wicked world. That's not going to change. But what changes is the presence of God that is within it. We had a great illustration of that during communion. Gideon is six years old. How many of you are going to walk out on stage at six years old? Gideon did. But you notice who was beside him. His dad was beside him. And you see, Gideon is loved to the point that he knows his daddy's never going to trick him. His daddy's going to be there to protect him and keep him out of it, any trouble. And he knows his daddy's going to be honest with him so that when his dad encourages him to do something, he knows his dad believes he can do it. Well, I want to tell you something. We serve a God today that is the exact same way. He'll never put you anywhere and desert you. He will ne- you will never go th- anywhere. The psalmist said, if I flee to the mountains, you're there. If I go to the deepest depths of the earth, you're there. If I fly away across the ocean, when I get there, you're there. Friends, I so desire for you to have this relationship with God of trust and love, not just when you want something, but just the everyday knowing that you have a God that is with you, wants to talk with you, wants to speak to you through his word, wants to take your weaknesses and make them strong, wants to take your fears and turn them to trust in him. Israel missed because they substituted a law they could not keep for a relationship that God desired for them. David in Psalms 11, the setting, David is with some counselors. And I guess they're talking about the world events, what's going on. And in uh, Psalms 11, verse 3, they say this. If the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? And remember, when we read that psalm, you're going to see that it's weird. It's it's almost like somebody just stuck it in there. But if you look at it in the context of David's counselors talking with him, and they're seeing the what's going on, not only the evil, but their enemies, the scorn, all they're going through in life, similar to us, the counselors wonder, if the foundations are destroyed, what, what is the foundation? Our foundation is Jesus Christ and his blood. That's the foundation. Their foundation was Yahweh creator God and the promise of an heir through David, the Messiah who would come. And so what they're saying is if what, if God's foundation, what if God, what he set up is destroyed what are we going to do, we who are righteous? That's, maybe that's a question that you're asking in the, time, the days in which we live. Are the foundations going to be destroyed? Let's read Psalm 11. We'll find out. Go back to first one. Sue, thank you. <clears throat> it begins out, in the Lord, I take refuge. How can you say to my soul, flee like a bird to your mountain? For behold, the wicked bend the bow, and they have fitted their arrow to the string to shoot in the dark at the upright heart. See, here's the scenario. 
If I run, where can I run? Because when I run, the wicked, all they do is shoot in the dark, and that's going to get me. Then Then the next verse comes up. Their summation is this. If the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? This is when David steps in. The Lord is in his holy temple, and the Lord's throne is in heaven. If there's one thing you need to understand today, in spite of all of the stupid, unlawful, ungodly laws that we have in this land, the battles that we're having, the division of the races, all of this trouble that the evil one can stir up, we, you need to understand, I need to understand today, the Lord is still in his holy temple and the Lord's throne is in heaven. There was a philosopher one time that said he didn't believe in God. And a wag, a Christian philosopher said, God doesn't believe in that philosopher. But you see, we, without a relationship with God, what you read, what people say is going to shake you. You're going to begin to wonder, do we have a firm foundation? I want you to know that the Lord's in his holy temple, the Lord's throne is in heaven, and it will remain there until Jesus Christ comes back and harvests his church. That's going to happen. Nothing in this world, no government, no authority can come against the Lord because he's on the throne. That means he's sovereign. He rules. He decides. Let's go ahead. His eyes see and his eyelids test. Now, if you're a parrot, you know what that means. How many of you have had your kids, you've had to get on to them, and you lay back and you just shut your eyelids. And that kid looks at you and says, ah, he's asleep. I'm going to keep on doing what I'm doing, right? Amen? Y'all must not have had any kids. (laughs) His eyes see. His eyelids test the children of man. What are you going to do when you think I'm sleeping? The Lord tests, he tests the righteousness, not to tear us down, not to defeat us, but to show us that with him, everything is possible. What God ordains, where God leads, what God has you to do, hey, that's our test. Not if we will succeed, but will we obey God? But his soul hates the wicked and the one who loves violence. See, there's this opposition. God hates wickedness. You say, well, why would he hate wickedness? Look at his son when he came to earth. The promised Messiah. Beaten to he was not even recognizable in any way. Nailed to a tree. A spear shoved in his side. While he was on his earthly ministry, he was mocked. He, people rushed at him. They tried to get him. They, they, they humi- tried to humiliate him. That's why God hates wickedness. Second reason he hates wickedness is what it does to you and I. The outcome of sin is death. Sin equals death. To live in sin is to live in death. 
Some uh, evangelist preached a, a sermon, I think 50 years ago, I've never forgot the three points. Sin will take you further than you want to go. Sin will cost you more than you want to pay. And sin will keep you longer than you want to stay. That's why God hates the righteous. But the, I hate, excuse me, the wicked. But he loves the righteous and nourishes us through a relationship where he, his power and strength is evident in our mind and our lives, knowing that with him, there's nothing impossible. Let's finish this. The Lord tests the righteous, his soul hates the wicked, and the one who loves violence. Let him rain coals of fire on the wicked, fire and sulfur, and a scorching wind shall be the portion of their cup. For the Lord is righteous, he loves righteous deeds, and the upright shall behold his face. What a beautiful promise. What a beautiful promise. Let me ask you a question. Let's be honest. How's your relationship with the Lord? I'm not talking about how often you're here or in service. And those things are important. And those things will naturally come out of a relationship with the Lord. You want to serve him. You want to serve others. That's going to come out. How's your relationship? Charles Billingsley has a song. I'm not going to sing so nobody leave. Here's the words. If I were stronger, would I see a reason for trusting everything in your hand? Without this hunger, would I believe in a love my heart can barely comprehend? I never thought my brokenness could take me very far. But it's only through my weakness that I see how strong you are. I'm willing to be weaker, a faithful seeker of your heart. To know your healing, I will be a broken and empty vessel in your arm. So if that's what it takes to bring me to my knees, Lord, I'm willing to be weak. When I consider all I've been given, it's clear to me that there are, your ways are not mine. So I surrender the life I'm living just to know the peace that you alone provide here, standing in the shadow of this mountain, I have faced, I see your hand of mercy, but it's only by your grace. All I once considered gained, I now count for a loss. I know your res resurrection power. I take up my cross. Have you taken up your cross today? Have you taken up that cross, the cross of salvation? Do you know the hands and feet inside of Jesus are a remarkable thing? They have holes in them where blood once poured out. And those hands are representative of two things. It's representative of sin and it's representative of salvation. Because of sin, he was pierced. But because he was pierced, we have salvation through Jesus Christ. I urge you this morning, I urge you listening this morning, if you have decided to follow Jesus, there is a I have decided to follow button. If you will click that, give your information, our 
online pastor, Tom, will be with you. This morning, if you'd like to follow Christ, I'll be right over here. If you need prayer or would like to pray, this altar is here. But I ask you, are you willing to become weaker in order to be stronger in Christ? Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for its challenge. Lord, today may we boldly, boldly enter into the throne room of God in a personal relationship, God, that lasts not just a lifetime. God, it's an eternity. Call to your folks today, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen.